And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, July 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, NIH needs to tighten oversight of foreign grant money recipients. Plus, the State Department launches a special program to monitor the violence in Sudan. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, when Congress renewed the Small Business Innovation Research, or SBIR, program and the Small Business Technology Transfer, STTR, program last fall, you could hear a collective sigh of relief from the federal community. Many experts expounded on the importance and value of SBIR and STTR, but data to drive home that point, that was not so easy to find. Raj Sharma is the founder and CEO of the Public Spend Forum. He walks executive editor Jason Miller through some new data that illuminates the SBIR and STTR programs like never before. The program has grown over the past few years from approximately $2.8 billion in 2018 to $3.7 billion now, which is great. One interesting finding was that, you know, we're seeing at a without the category level view, Cyber Phase 2 funding has increased 37%, while Cyber Phase 1 funding has stayed about the same. And why that matters if you don't know the Cyber program, Phase 1 are smaller investments, lots of, let's say, bets like venture capital makes on experiments and prototyping and initial research, right? And then from phase one, you take technologies or, or those experiments and say, okay, can we actually further develop them into phase two? So I think that's a good sign that phase two has grown to, by 37%. That means more of those technologies are being funded to grow, right? And to further develop, right? And then we are looking at even phase three commercialization because that's the ultimate where some of the criticism of the program has come in is are we actually taking these and making them programs of record, for instance, some of these technologies. And and so we are documenting that, but that's one good thing that we saw. In terms of where the money's being funded, I personally was actually surprised when I saw biotech and medical technology by far about 6.5 out of the 17 billion over five years. So from 2018 to 2022, there were about $17 billion in initial awards made for Cibra and STTR. 6.5 billion approximately was towards biotech and medical tech. So that's a huge amount. And we were surprised, but maybe we shouldn't be because a lot of funding goes into medical research, right? Drug development, et cetera. And that's what we saw drug and vaccine development is a big area that where there's funding. And then after that, some other categories like manufacturing related, we know that's a focus of the administration and growing the manufacturing sector and also in DOD, et cetera. So there were about 3 billion collectively that's going towards manufacturing type initiatives. So that was great to see. And then there are a number of other ones like energy, of course. We were surprised with a couple of other ones like microelectronics not being as large, but we see the growth coming in those areas because there's so much focus in that. So that was number two. And then a couple of other things to point out. You know, one of the most interesting things, Jason, that we looked at was great technology investments. We'll always talk about that. But we also know technology, we invest in it because we're trying to solve some problem. So we need to better understand what problems are we trying to solve? So that's one of the deeper questions. So I was, it was interesting to look at some of the information that we gleaned through our AI approach. So we use a lot of our AI algorithms that are built, built over time to help us glean some of these answers. So for instance, just give you one or two examples. 
first of all, aerospace defense, medical tech, manufacturing type are uh, big areas of investment. The types of use cases, so if we take manufacturing, smart factory automation, right? That's a very specific type of use case. So looking at whether it's at the depot level and other places, how can we do a factory automation? And that's a use case. In medical tech, drug and vaccine development is a huge focus, as I mentioned. In aerospace and defense, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, huge area of use case, right? And then you look at the technologies below that. You mentioned phase one, phase two funding, and I think that that was also something that stood out to me, just the amount of money Mm -hmm. going into it. But one thing that I was looking for was the phase three discussion. So you said you mentioned the phase three discussion is something you're still working through right now, or is that something that's a a separate research project? Yes, no, absolutely. That's such an important one. And again, some of the data issues there. Right. Phase three is there's no official phase three per se. Right. So you can move from phase two. And then after that, in agencies, it's not funded through congressionally appropriated funds for cyber right anymore. So then you can line up funding. But phase three, it's a little bit more difficult because sometimes companies may go out and get a contract, an IDIQ contract. And it might be a follow on from the work that's been done through phase two, but it's not easy to find the relationship between the two things. So we're working on that. The second thing is there are contracts that are clearly labeled phase three, but there are fewer. So we would undercount a lot. And I think that's one of the issues when we start criticizing or making critiques about without real data behind it. And I don't think policymakers should be making decisions without really good evidence behind them. Some of our initial findings, right, where we looked at how many companies get private capital after if they're first funded by a SIBR. It's an interesting question that we actually had in one of our White House discussions as well. So is government R&D funding helping companies raise money? And so then they can get private capital because government isn't going to fund everything. So we found out of the 10,000 companies, 655 companies, now a lot more got funded, by the way, private capital out of the 10K, but 655 of them first got SIBR funding and then got private capital. Now, is is the SIBR the reason they got private capital? We're not sure, but I think that's a good thing to know, right? So I, I think there are these positive signs that are coming out, and but we're going to kind of refrain from fully commenting. You mentioned the categories and, you know, I guess biotech and medical technologies is, was less surprising to me. But what stood out was the obviously the AI autonomy and then also the space areas. Again, probably not surprising that these were very popular areas. But what does it tell you when you went through the categories? Uh, and what does it tell you about where the focus, what can people take from this, whether contractors or other agencies, about where the prioritization or where the, where the excitement is among uh, agencies for investment in SBIR and STTR? Yeah, and I think this is the fundamental question we started with, right? And we saw there was a need for this kind of deep dive by categories and by technologies and use cases. So I think the areas we see, right, we highlight trusted AI and autonomy grew by 248%. That kind of makes sense, right? AI plus autonomy, drones, et cetera, right? Electric vehicle, you see a lot of investment in autonomy, right? So the combination of the two, uh, that's 248%. That was the highest growth we saw in any category, number one. Then space grew by a- almost 100%. And that makes sense too. We see a lot of activity right now with the Space Force being stood up. 
In many ways, the focus on, as you said, AI autonomy, space, it's almost to be expected. Were there any areas that maybe didn't get as much attention about from in terms of the big numbers, but you were maybe surprised by how much it, it did grow? Well, I think one interesting area, just because of, I think, what's happening with climate and all the all the things you see lately, right, whether it's storms coming in and everything, right, there's more and more, let's say, climate events happening. The natural disaster mitigation tech, you know, we see some growth in that area. There's some interesting use cases, and I, I need to dive deeper into that myself. But if you were to ask us, where are we seeing some growth? I think that's one probably not so obvious and not always talked about. But there's some interesting technology, for instance, natural disaster, you know, whether it's supply chain risk technology that helps you predict, hey, there's a disaster happening somewhere. How do you manage, right, your supply chain? Or for emergency preparedness or responding, there are sensors and drones, right, Dr uh, sensors being dropped from zones into disaster areas, right, to, to get a scan of the entire area and see what's going on. And, and so I think you're going to see more, you know, in some ways, unfortunately, because the number of disasters is increasing and events are increasing. So I think that was one area that I saw and we see more happening, just as I think not, not something that's talked about enough. Raj Sharma, founder and CEO of Public Spend Forum. Check out the report and all of the data on SBIR at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the State Department launches a special program to monitor the violence in Sudan. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. We recently brought you an interview with one of this year's Data for Diplomacy awardees from the State Department. It cited the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations for its work in a program called Conflict Observatory. Team lead Susan Wolfenbarger joins us once again for an update on a new observation post in the deeply troubled Sudan. Dr. Wolfenbarger, good to have you with us. Tell us again in general what these conflict observatories are. What do they consist of and what do they look at? Sure. The Conflict Observatory Program is a way that we are harnessing remote data feeds and technologies to monitor crisis situations around the world. We're taking advantage of things like commercial satellite imagery and other open source information that's available globally and can help us understand events on the ground. So what are some of the types of feeds that might be helpful in Sudan right now? We're taking advantage of a lot of new uh, data feeds in Sudan. For example, we're using a lot of high-resolution satellite imagery to monitor events on the ground. We're also using thermal imagery because a lot of conflict events also produce heat signatures. And so thermal detections can actually give us a lot of ideas about where we should be looking for example, with the burning events that have been in the news in Darfur, it helps us quickly triage large areas and figure out where we should be looking. And this civil war has produced refugees and large numbers of people on movement. Are you able to have feeds, drone pictures, or some means of tracking what's going on on that front? We're also using a data source called human mobility data, and that really helps us understand some of those 
more fine-grained movements of population. So this is using location data from cell phones, and it's helping us to understand the population shifts that are happening on the ground, which can be really helpful for responding and assisting in humanitarian operations because we have much more detailed information about where people have left and where they have gone to. Right. So just a side question. In some nations, they can maybe block those signals or turn off the cell towers and this kind of thing. So has that been the case in the Sudan Observatory, or has it been pretty much an even data flow? There are internet outages and things that are happening on the ground across Sudan that does impact the timeliness of the data in some cases. But what happens with this feed is that even when a device does not currently have internet access, it stores the information and then is able to transmit it once it regains a signal. So sometimes there is a delay on that information, but we're still getting it significantly more quickly than we could in any other mechanism. And are there unstructured sources of data that also feed into the observatory? For example, news accounts, which are text, or human observation that is reporting into people at the State Department or maybe coming through military reports? Yes, absolutely. A big component of the work in Sudan is using open source investigation techniques. So these are really developed methods for monitoring all of the information that is posted on the internet because there's so much that's shared on social media, on chat platforms, even statements by officials are part of what is collected. And so as they come across photos and videos that are found online, you can actually geolocate those uh, using these techniques where you identify key aspects of that photo or video and tie it to known locations in satellite imagery. So that helps them get views of what's going on on the ground that you wouldn't be able to get from just a satellite image alone. And what about the technology aspects of us? I mean, you are a technical person or a diplomatic person or you bridge those two things because it sounds like there has to be some really good technical underpinnings from the IT staff to be able to enable these observatories. I'm actually a geographer by training, and my specialization is in remote sensing, so doing the type of analysis that the teams are doing as part of the conflict observatory. But I do work at the State Department, and so I'm figuring out how we can really leverage all of these analytic techniques, all these data feeds, and bringing them in to support the goals of the State Department and our our work in the diplomatic realm. We're speaking with Susan Wolfenbarger. She's a team lead in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the State Department. And I can understand why you got an award for Data for Diplomacy and all of this effort. These feeds come in, then what happens? How are they integrated? How are they turned into products? You can't put them in a pouch and seal it with wax. So we have a analytic platform that we're using for the conflict observatory. And this platform is where we ingest all of the data feeds. And then all the teams that are part of the conflict observatory, including the Yale Humanitarian Research Lab, Planetscape AI, and Esri, are then doing their research and documentation activities on that platform. And that's a really secure FISMA high system. It's a very secure way of doing all of the analysis and being able to decide what information is shared publicly and what isn't. Because as you can imagine, doing this type of an analysis of a war zone creates some sensitive information. And earlier we spoke about the work of the observatory in Ukraine. Did learnings there somehow inform the setup of the observatory, the newest one in Sudan? 
Absolutely. All of the data feeds that we're using and the platform itself are available to be used anywhere in the world. And so when we started discussing a Sudan conflict observatory, it was really easy, relatively speaking, to add that component to the work because we have experienced analysts, we have all of the global data feeds that we needed, and we just need to bring them together and point them at Sudan. And other components of the government do data gathering and geolocation work. There's the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which has the really big view. But then there might be military assets, even though we're not involved as much in the Sudan, you know, militarily, but maybe observing what's going on. Is there a chance to get feeds from other sources outside of the State Department and vice versa? Can your feeds maybe help the military if they request that feed? All the information that the teams are using to create their documentation is com is completely unclassified and open source or commercial information. And they're making that publicly available so that anyone can access it on their website. All right. Sounds like the answer is no then in that case. And who are the consumers of this within the State Department? And who do you sense might be using this open source data maybe outside the State Department? academics, perhaps, or, or whomever? One of the biggest focus areas of this program is support to humanitarian operations. And so the teams are partnering directly with groups that are planning aid deliveries and other actions on the ground in Sudan. So this real-time geographic data that they are analyzing and producing analysis of is really critical in being able to provide a real-time awareness of what's happening on the ground as people are thinking about operating and making movements across Sudan. So it might inform someone like, say, a contractor for USAID that could be operating there, knowing where it's safe to go or where they can't go or otherwise being able to adjust their plans. Would that be like a use case? I think one of the best use cases is thinking about humanitarian convoys. So when you are trying to plan a movement from maybe Port Sudan to another location, being able to understand where there are checkpoints or where roads might be destroyed or a bridge might be out is really critical information. And so this information that's being shared out and created by the team can really help any of any groups that are working on that type of operations on the ground. And a final question, how permanent are these observatories, these data collection sets that are then, you know, analyzed and, and combined and so forth? Do you shut them off at some point or what's the long-term plan for each of the observatories? You've got a couple of them up and running now. Yeah, I think that the different observatories have different time periods associated with them. For example, in Ukraine, where we're doing war crimes documentation, the justice and accountability processes that those are trying to assist can last for 10 or 15 years. And so we have to think about storing that information and making it accessible for a much longer time period than what we might in a more rapidly evolving humanitarian focused type of operation that we're supporting in Sudan. So it's really about, you know, the end goal of the program and what we're trying to achieve. And I imagine a long base of observation, maybe after the conclusion of a conflict or the recession of it, let's say, that itself could be a good analytical tool to compare what was going on in the heat of it versus what was going on in the tail of it. Absolutely. It's always really helpful as we're trying to understand what was happening in a conflict 
to have that type of information. It's so unusual to have a way to create it. And so this documentation that we're doing with the different conflict observatory programs is creating new information that people would not otherwise have access to. And that's going to really inform a lot of our research and understanding in the longer term. And do you have a dashboard and foggy bottom that you sit and kind of stare at all day? We have a lot of dashboards um, and they are really fun to interact with. Susan Wolfenbarger is a team lead in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the Sudan Conflict Observatory at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, that rumbling you hear is the end of the fiscal year approaching. But first, NIH needs to tighten oversight of foreign grant money recipients. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. It is perfectly legal for federal agencies to make grants to foreign entities. Research and scientific good can come of it, but it requires oversight. The Government Accountability Office looked at how the Health and Human Services Department, and in particular the National Institutes of Health, oversees its foreign grants, or money that went to grant subrecipients in foreign countries like China. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessments and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, good to have you back. Thank you so much for having me again, Tom. And just on the question of who can receive federal grants, there is no one policy over which countries can get them that is cross-government. Is that correct? In other words, NIH maybe can give money to Chinese establishments. Other agencies may not be able to. So from the work that we've done in the past, we've certainly seen where agencies have made awards to foreign entities, including entities in China. But we also are aware that there are other agencies that have limitations on funding to certain foreign countries. For example, NASA not being able to provide funding to uh, entities in China. And I imagine the Defense Department would not want to give, say, an artificial intelligence development grant to someone in China, just to make an extreme example. I can't really comment on that because it's not something that I specifically looked at. No, we'll get back to this report. And I'm guessing this was prompted by the controversy or the questions surrounding the Wuhan laboratory. And so you were looking at the oversight. We won't get into the science of, you know, how the virus got out or anything like that. But what were you specifically looking for here in this particular report? So we were asked to look at the extent to which there was federal funding dispersed to three Chinese entities that included Wuhan University, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. We were asked to identify if there was any federal funding to those three entities for the time period of calendar year 2014 through 2021. In order to do that work, we actually started with federal databases such as USA Spending to identify if agencies had made any dispersed funding to either of those three entities. And what did you find? So in our work, we found that um, there was one direct award from NIH, the National Institutes of Health, made an award directly to Wuhan University for $200,000, where we saw that that amount of money was dispersed. This was the only award that GAO identified that was directly from an agency to one of the three entities. 
We also identified that there was funding that was made available through seven subawards to the three entities, and these totaled over $2.1 million. These subawards were from awards that were funded by NIH, as well as U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. So it's really then knowledge of the subawardees that is of concern here? Certainly. So there are reporting requirements for federal agencies to provide information on funds that are made to award recipients. That data is usually available in USA spending. What's interesting, though, is that the extent of subaward funding is not fully known. Award recipients are supposed to report data on first-tier subawards. There are some limitations, though, where that information on subawards below the first tier or if the subaward is below $30,000, is not required to be reported. We also identified in the course of our work that sometimes it can be difficult to fully understand the extent of funding that's provided because the funding could have been provided under a different name. And so in two instances, we found that there were two subawards that were made to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. However, the funds were actually awarded under the name of the Beijing Institute of Microbiology and Epidemiology. We're speaking with Candace Wright, Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. So it looks as if China then maybe hides a little bit of who might be getting, which is not really a lot of money in the final analysis here compared to NIH granting authority is, is tens of billions. And this was, you know, a couple of million maybe that went to these institutions. So what do these results say to us? What are you recommending? So the issue of subawards and the lack of visibility into them is something that's been a longstanding issue it's, or, and certainly a known issue um, in terms of the lack of visibility. And so what's really important is really for there to be continued focus about how do we ensure that we get visibility into federal funding as it goes, not just at the first award recipient, but as it goes through those lower tiers. In the recommendation that we made, it was really for NIH to think about ways in which it can continue to to enhance its oversight of awards, including foreign entities. We thought it was really important that they seek to identify different ways in which they can take immediate action to do so. We recommended that they take a look at their processes, their internal processes for how they oversee awards that involve foreign entities. And this was largely based on the work that we did, but also that of findings from the HHS uh, Office of Inspector General, who had also made recommendations identifying the need to improve and enhance their monitoring of award recipients involving foreign entities. And of that sub-award money that went to the Academy of Military Medical Arts and Sciences of China, who was the primary grant recipient there? There were two instances where NIH had actually funded an award to Duke University that went to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. And then there was also an NIH award to what's known as the Regents of the University of California that also had a subaward that was made available to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. I will note that with respect to the NIH award to the Regents of the University of California, and the subaward that was then made to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, it was actually terminated. So there were not actually any funds that were dispersed. Got it. Do you think that, is it possible to know whether the Regents or Duke University knew who they were actually sending money to as sub? I mean, sometimes China hides entities. They had a police station in the middle of New York City that nobody knew what it was. I mean, they're pretty good at hiding their identity if they need to. 
So I will note uh, these particular awards, we were actually able to identify them in USA spending and then did have some interviews with these entities. It certainly does appear that there was knowledge that the funding would be going to these entities based on the documents that we were able to review. Oftentimes, award recipients are expected to include information with respect to what subrecipients may be receiving federal funding for research. And this might be outside of the scope of your search here, but and let me know if it is. But could it be simply that academics, and they know other academics in the same field from around the world because they all go to their international meetings all the time, flying into the various capitals throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, and so on. And to them, it's just science to science as colleagues. And they might be not even aware of or just ignoring or naive to the political implications of, say, a subgrant from a Duke or a Regents of California going to a Chinese military institution. Well, we've certainly seen in our work that when you think about the research in and of itself, it is supposed to be a collaborative endeavor where you're learning from each other, sharing information. And so given that more collaborative approach, it's not always the case, perhaps, that researchers might be thinking about some of the national security or other types of implications. And so over the more recent years, there's definitely been a lot of uh, attention being paid to this issue, really to try to raise awareness from the researcher community more broadly about the potential for security concerns that they should be mindful of. And the recommendations you made to try to get better visibility into subawards deeper and deeper, did the two agencies agree with you? So our recommendation was only to NIH. And again, this is because of some of the reporting or, and findings that we had, as well as the inspector generals on some of the awards. And so the agency did concur and noted that it is planning to take action. And it had concurred also with the Office of Inspector General's recommendations. What we thought was really important is that NIH and its response to the Office of the Inspector General's recommendations noted that they were going to need to take some longer term actions that may not result in immediate changes. And we thought that it was really important that they, while they pursue those longer term efforts, that they really think about looking at their own internal processes and things that they might be able to do much more quickly, again, to be able to enhance their oversight and monitoring of awards that involve foreign entities. We think it's important that they look at those awards that involve foreign entities, especially foreign subrecipients, where we know that there is less visibility as you go down trying to understand where the funding is going to different subrecipients at various tiers. Candace Wright is Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that rumbling you hear is the end of the fiscal year approaching. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Time-wise, there's not much left of the federal fiscal year, less than three months now. Money-wise, it's a different story. Agencies will spend around $217 billion between now and September 30th, more than half by the Defense Department. Contractors, especially small businesses, need to make sure their pipelines are clear to get some of that money in. That's according to my next guest, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And it does have a little bit of a weird feeling this year because of 
just the the debt deal came, and now there's still no budget, and so it could be a full year CR coming. But we do have the rest of this fiscal. So what's the best advice for contractors for the time left? Tom, I think the best advice for contractors is essentially what you inferred, and that is this is the time to strike. Now is the time where you have opportunities, where there is money to be spent by federal agencies. I wouldn't say don't worry about October, but October is a few months away yet, and there really is not much that is within our control to change the political uh, appropriations and budgeting process. So now is the time to focus on finishing the year strong and getting as much business in the door as you can. If you're a small business, I think it's useful to know that according to Bloomberg government, the top 10 federal agencies need to spend $28 billion with small firms just during this quarter in order to make their small business contracting goals. That's a lot of opportunity, Tom. And within that, the Department of Veterans Affairs, surprisingly, I think, has the most ground to make up. So if you're looking for some places to target, particularly if you already have some business with the VA in the pipeline, that could be a good focus area. Right. And because so much of the dollars will be going through the government-wide acquisition contracts, the popular ones, which are task orders and not really you know, new contracts in that sense, technically, then you might have a better shot in that route than trying something from a brand new full and open competition, if there even are any more launched in the next couple of months. Tom, I would emphasize that this is the time of year that it's difficult for agencies to do full and open competitions. Will they do them? Of course they will. Full and open competition, your basic start from square one procurement is always part of the government acquisition market. However, asking your government customer to do that when there is time ticking on the clock and other alternatives available could be a very tough sell on top of what it is you're trying to sell them in terms of a solution. We look at the statistics every year. This year, the estimates are that 60% of total dollars, or over $130 billion, Tom, are going to go through those standing IDIQ contracts, things like the GSA schedules, the NASA soup program. In DOD, you have the CIOSP programs and the Navy next-gen contracts. So, There's plenty of going on uh, in that IDIQ area. Key here is you need to focus on the things that are in your pipeline, but you also need to be able to answer the how question. That is, how do I get to you? And if it's an IDIQ contract that either you or a partner have, that's great. If it's a small business set aside, that's great. Simplified acquisition, that's okay. Uh, But you better have some easy readily identifiable ways to make it that much easier for the customer to get the solution from you, because if they can't get it from you, they might be able to get it from a competitor. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and there is this new Homeland Security set of regulations coming out only after six years it took them to get them out on how contractors must handle CUI, controlled unclassified information, and these are supposed to be in solicitations immediately starting, I think, the end of July. Could that actually affect things this year, do you think? Tom, it certainly could affect things this year if you're doing business with the Department of Homeland Security. Ironically, this agency has kind of leapfrogged over their colleagues at the Department of Defense and come out with 
an interim rule on uh, contract uh, on how contracts are going to handle controlled unclassified information. And what's interesting about this, Tom, is two things. First of all, DHS came out first. Second, they're not using the same definition or baselines of what constitutes CUI as the Department of Defense is using. DHS came up with its own definition of what constitutes CUI. It's a little bit more expansive in some ways than the DOD definition. And then the other part is that uh, the standard by which the Department of Homeland Security is implementing CUI is different again from what the Department of Defense is purportedly going to be using when they come out with their own uh, rule, which is expected to be sometime in the next few months. And this, as NIST is in the middle of a revision of the standards that it issues for CUI, and that's going to be later when that comes out, they're still evaluating comments. That's right. What we're referring to here, Tom, is the NIST 800-171 standard on how contractors or anyone that handles sensitive, controlled, unclassified information or even federal contract information, which has its own definition, is handled. And the key here, as you inferred, is that that NIST standard itself is changing. So companies that have already made investments and coming up to speed on complying with the current NIST standard, which has been in place for a while, and the coming uh, CMMC standard that the Department of Defense is supposed to come out with soon, are going to have to invest even more to ensure that their systems are compliant with whatever the new standard happens to be. Yeah, so some work to do there, and uh, you got to keep your eyes open. And finally, I just wanted to discuss with you the idea of just keeping your priorities as a contractor, because with all that money floating around, it looks like you could just sort of plunge in and, and reach around for it. But it doesn't work that way, does it, in reality, especially as the year winds up? Tommy, you're exactly right. Whether you're a government contractor or a government agency, no one I know has the resources to be everywhere at once. You simply have to prioritize the things that are important to you. Right now, if you're a government contractor, that means starting to prioritize the opportunities that are in your pipeline. Not necessarily what are the biggest, but what are the best? What are the ones that you're most likely to have? And so then you have to commit the resources based on that evaluation. If you don't commit the necessary resources to pursue the most likely or most lucrative pieces of business, then you're going to spread yourself too thin and you run the risk of not doing any one thing particularly well. But I would hasten to add that there's absolutely a lesson here for federal agencies. Federal agencies, particularly right now, are trying to implement lots of different policy changes pushed by the administration, whether it's socioeconomic or environmental or some other type of initiative that the administration has. These are all perceived goods by the people in power. And yet you can't have agencies doing all of them at once because that's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to a lot of confusion, lead to confusion, ironically, not just with contractors, but with people that you're serving we hear a lot about customer experience. Well, if you confuse your customers, that's certainly going to be an experience, Tom. So whether you're a contractor or a government agency, it's important to do the tough work, 
have some leadership and prioritize what's most important on your to-do list. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Great advice. Thanks for being with us. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Thirteen technology and venture capital leaders wrote a letter to the Defense Department last week asking for acquisition reform. Although the letter only covered a few recommendations, it referred back to a study done by the Atlantic Council on ways to reform defense acquisition, including that creaky planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked about the report with the former head of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown. There are very specific recommendations that are made. For example, reprogramming authority with a historical perspective of how little reprogramming authority senior level department officials have to adjust to urgent priorities and move into something that might be needed versus what was programmed in three years ago when the budget began. So that kind of brings up one of the things I wanted to ask you about. With the current mood of Congress right now, is less oversight even possible? Well, I think it's a very welcome debate as to whether today's way of handling the budget actually provides better oversight. There's three to 5,000 line items in the budget for defense only. Quite a change when the first budget was done in 1789. I looked this up. There were four line items for the federal government. I get government is more complex now than it was in 1789, so I'm not arguing for four. But you could certainly argue that the Defense Department would have adequate oversight with a few hundred line items where the Congress would concentrate on the big ticket items and give some strategic guidance. Instead, their finely grained appropriations, imagine again, three to 5,000 line items where DIU, a very small organization, had a couple by itself. And there's no flexibility to move from one program element, it's called, to another. Those are the line items. And then as you know, and many of your listeners know, even within a line item, that's further specified by color of money. So procurement dollars are different from R&D dollars, different from operations dollars. So that actually puts a straitjacket on the department in terms of its flexibility. And when you think about what I've worked on for the last couple of years, which is innovation, which is happening at a rapid rate with new technology, there's no opportunity even for senior level department officials to say, that is a very cool technology and I could use it in this application Let's field it. Instead, that very senior level, whether it's a four-star General Brown, head of the Air Force, if he wants something, he says, put that in the budget. And that means in three years, we can start spending the first dollar. So that's completely inconsistent with a competition that we're facing with an adversary like China, which the defense strategy calls our facing adversary, and the rate at which technology moves for AI, cyber, autonomy, and so many of the newer technologies that the department is trying to field. Well, I think the budgeting is, a, frankly, a constraint on our national security, and it's one where we've handed the advantage to the adversary just because we haven't adjusted our process from the Cold War. The process we use today was put in place by Secretary McNamara in the 1960s. So it's, it's geared for buying ships, tanks, and planes, not for software and other things in the digital age. So we, we have to look at that and say, what kind of flexibility do we need that would actually attract new vendors to want to work with the Department of Defense and provide new capabilities. We're going to need to overhaul some of how we work with those vendors because in some of these spaces, 
the federal government isn't even uh, a large consumer relative to the rest of the market. In some, we are, if you think about buying rocket launch capacity, launches a service or satellite imagery, even autonomy, the government is a pretty big customer. But if you think about AI or cyber tools, not a significant part of the market. So we can't expect those innovative vendors who have something we need to completely turn themselves upside down so they can do business with the Department of Defense. Do you see a, a viable change in the near future? I do. I was very encouraged by the mark of the House Appropriations Committee. So Chairman Calvert from California has said, I'd like to see us implementing a hedge strategy. This is actually something that Admiral Lawrence Selby and I've written about. And it's saying a pretty common sense concept. We can't rely just on ships, tanks, and planes. We actually need to hedge those hardware long-term platforms, meaning we hold on to them for 20, 30, 40 years, with lots of newer, smaller things that are uh, resilient, that are sensors, that are autonomous. So you think about everything from better capability in space with different types of sensors, infrared, synthetic aperture radar that gives us real-time perspective of what's happening on the ground. You saw that used in Ukraine. You could see through clouds. You could see at night because we were using radar in addition to optical technology. Now there's infrared and radio frequency sensors being combined with that. So that makes it pretty tough for adversaries to hide or do something nefarious that we're not seeing, all the way to the effect you're seeing with small drones, cell phones being used as geolocators. So there's a whole set of commercially based technology the defense department didn't invent, but sure as heck can use. And these are the kind of things that would be in a head strategy. So the Chairman Calvert is saying uh, he'd like to appropriate a billion dollars to get started on that head strategy. And he asked DIU to lead the effort along with the services. So I was very encouraged by that. In terms of technology that has more commercial market viability than, than defense viability, what incentives can be provided to them to go into contracts with the Defense Department? Really moving at speed. Uh, so let's take AI as an example. That's being developed all around us at a very rapid rate. The Defense Department is not going to be the biggest consumer of AI, nor is it going to be the developer of AI. If we're able to just, with less red tape, quickly provide dollars, money from contracts to those suppliers, we'll attract them. I think Ukraine has changed how people think about supporting the Defense Department. We saw a tremendous uh, number of suppliers who were interested in working with the Defense Department, even before Ukraine, at the Defense Innovation Unit. Every time we would post a problem and say, who's got something that could solve that? On average, we saw 45 companies for each problem we posted. So the, the companies and the technologies are out there. And then we got to go through a process to test and down-select to who are the vendors we want to work with. Not everything someone proposes is something that's going to work. But if you can show that within a short period of time, you could actually start to provide those companies with contract dollars. And we have a vehicle to do that. It's authority Congress gave us called Other Transaction Authority. That allows you to do a competition. We're able to test you know, a software within six months, going through taking it really through its paces to see if it performs in a military application. And then immediately upon the completion of that test, you can start ramping production with a production OT agreement, also provided in statute. Many folks don't do that. Many folks we work with at the Defense Innovation Unit would then go do another competition or try and use federal acquisition regulations. 
that's allowed but not required and that takes a lot more time so you could envision a process where you do a prototyping then go to a production ot and within months you could be providing uh, contract dollars to that vendor that's a very different scenario than telling that vendor please wait in three years we'll program the next dollar in the defense budget and provide it so that, that's where the flexibility comes into play we need a little bit of help from congress on the flexibility part but as long as the dod component has the dollars allocated the authorities are there to start spending it faster and scaling up new capability Mike Brown, a former head of the Defense Innovation Unit and partner at the venture capital firm Shield, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.